Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. The historically black Lincoln University has been in the news since the untimely January 8th death of Antoinette Bonnie Candia Bailey, who was vice president of student affairs at the school in Jefferson City, Missouri. The letter Candia Bailey sent via email that day detailed the workplace bullying she experienced under Lincoln University President John B. Mosley. Word of Candia Bailey's passing and the circumstances she described in what was her farewell letter has prompted examination locally, regionally, and nationally, and in circles that include higher ed, but are certainly not limited to it. Holly Edgel is managing editor of the Midwest Newsroom. She joins us now to talk about her reporting on this story for NPR member stations in Missouri, Kansas, Iowa, and Nebraska. Holly, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Let's talk first about this letter. It was uh, very detailed, and it had many allegations. Talk with us about that. Sure. Well, this email was addressed specifically to Dr. Mosley, the president, and it ran to about 10 pages long. It was about 6,000 words. Um, It began with a very poignant line, Lincoln, where it began and where it ends. Um, And it details, as an academic person would do, very clearly, succinctly, and rather rationally, a lot of incidents that occurred over her less than one year in the job as Vice President of Student Affairs at Lincoln, including 18 succinct and distinct points that she tells uh, Mosley he needs to do to improve the work environment at Lincoln and the overall outlook for the university. Mm -hmm. Um, She mentions a key staffer who has a criminal record. She asks why this person is so close to the president and has such a a leading role in the the administration. She she speaks to specific incidents and times when she asked for help, feedback, um, support, and did not get it. She... Uh, admits that she has struggled with mental illness and includes times and dates when she asked the administration, even the Board of Curators, for um, family medical leave so that she could deal with the problem and was basically rebuffed Mm -hmm. or ignored. And um, all in all, it's really an indictment. Um, One of the alumni I interviewed called it a manifesto of not just her own concerns, but concern for the university, of which she was an alumna, by the way. Right. She was a graduate. And um, just a really heartbreaking look at what can happen in a workplace um, and um, what sort of the blind spots might be in a setting like, like that. Mm-hmm. So this letter, 10 pages long, and there is so much detail there. Um, I I don't think it's hard to imagine why it would hit so hard, but what what do you gather about the kind of response there has been 
to the letter and its contents and also the way that it was delivered. Yes, um, she wrote the email on the morning of um, January 8th, or that's when it was sent. It went to a wide uh, circle of people, including alumni, colleagues, friends, family. Um, And to me, I was so struck by the fact that she would have been sitting at her computer writing this out, knowing that by the end of the email, she was going to choose her exit by uh, taking her own life by suicide. And I think that is a huge piece of why this is so shocking to people. It also resonates, I think, uh, especially with black women who have found themselves in relatively advanced positions in their career, but continue to fight for a positive work environment, for opportunity to take their place at the table. And when they take their place at the table, they may find themselves being elbowed aside. I've received emails from alumni after my, my stories um, came out um, thanking me and thanking the Midwest Newsroom for shining this light. Um, a lot of times we don't get a lot of insight into what happens in higher education. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of higher education beat reporting. It's similar to how much reporting do we get out of a corner office in in, uh, corporate America, you know, although there's more reporting there. So I think that a lot of those factors play into it. Also, she was beloved um, by students, by colleagues, and um, at other jobs that she'd had, Mm -hmm. um, places that she'd been. She was an active sorority member of um, Alpha Kappa Alpha. She was active in the the Alumni Association of Lincoln. And, you know, there's a mental health factor. We can, many of us can relate to those struggles. And when that collides with your work and a feeling of not being supported, that resonates across a lot of, of sectors of work. Mm-hmm. Now, since January 8th, which was when the the email was sent out, um, what has the response been from Dr. Mosley, as well as from the school and the board of curators? Sure. Well, um, fairly quickly, um, Dr. Mosley um, took a voluntary paid leave. So that happened within a few days. Uh, the Board of Curators also, uh, within a few days, announced it would be seeking a third party to investigate and review what happened, but also overall the university's processes and systems. And since then, they have hired a St. Louis-based law firm to be that third party. So that is underway. Um, the Board of Curators, interestingly, um, has been uh, sending out its updates via its own letterhead via the university, but on Board of Curators' letterhead, um, they sent their last message out to the public was that announcement of the law firm. Um, They do have a regular meeting that was already on the calendar. That's for February 8th. Um, So that'll be really interesting to see what happens there, who who attends from the public, students, alumni. Interestingly, um, the head of the National Alumni Association, Dr. Sherman Bonds, he was one of the first to call out what had happened publicly. He wrote a public letter to the Board of Curators president, a man named Victor Paisley, he's here in Missouri, and said, we need a change. And that letter itself was heartrending. He he called the university, uh, described the university as being in despair and, and needing change, immediate change. 
And he told me that the Board of Curators, no one responded to him, to mm-hmm. that letter. And he's the national head of the Alumni Association. And I think something that's interesting about the alumni of Lincoln University, you had told me how far and wide they... Yep. Yeah, t- talk about they that. They are very engaged. <laughs> they... Um, there, in any almost any major U.S. city you can think of, there is an alumni association. Um, Dr. Bonds could not count the number of people who are alumni. That's going to be a lot of people. But he said there's a core of about 700 people who work financially for the alumni association to raise funds, maybe a dollar, maybe thousands, and help recruit to get kids to Lincoln for, mm-hmm. on scholarships. So they're very active. And in fact, the three emails that I received right after the story, all of those people were alumni mm-hmm. <laughs> from different parts of the country who had found our story, not even just in the Midwest. And because Lincoln does draw from around the country, it's here in Missouri, but it draws from all states. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think you see this network that's so wide and perhaps why the word spread in this in this way. Mm-hmm. Holly, can you clarify what the relationship is between Dr. John Mosley and the Board of Curators, just so we have some sense of like what is accountability? Like, how does it look? How might it, how, how might it operate? Sure. Well, um, basically, the governor of the state, which uh, Governor Parson, uh, appoints the board of curators. They have varying terms. Um, they are supposed to rotate the presidency through the, the board. And the board of curators has oversight over the university. They will be the ones to appoint the president after a um, job search, like many workplaces would have. Um, Dr. Mosley was interim president for a while, um, and then in 2022, he got the job permanently. Basically, um, he reports to the board of curators. And one of the things that's interesting, too, is I've talked to people who have worked in academic settings, and generally speaking, the board of curators tends to take um, a quiet role of, of sort of steering the university. I've been told that um, in the case of Lincoln, they this particular board takes quite an active role in the um, the very sort of um, even day-to-day affairs of the university, which is um, quite different from many settings where you see a board of a similar type with a president. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was brought up in Candia Bailey's um, letter had to do with micromanagement. So there's sort of an interesting intersection right. there. So as far as the ramifications of this story, um, and, and with the letter, it occurred to me that it, it was not so much a cry for help because Bonnie had already made up her mind, um, even as she was hitting send on that email. It's more of a, a demand for justice. Is this also the way that um, alumni and students and other other folks who are kind of standing up um, in in Candia Bailey's absence is that what they're saying? Absolutely. Like I said, you know, the um, this one uh, alumni that I spoke with, alumnus Antonio Lewis, who is the who's a city council member for the city of Atlanta. So no one who's a stranger to big institutions and complex institutions. He called it a manifesto, and he said it's it's a chronicle of what he calls a go-along-to-get-along culture. And what she did was step outside of her own distress 
to leave behind a message, a rallying cry for the university. And uh, a lot of people love their alma mater. I found the people who went to Lincoln that I've spoken with and go to Lincoln are just passionate about it. Um, They feel, I've heard this many times, Lincoln made me who I am. And when you feel that connection to your alma mater, you want it to succeed. You want other students who go there to shine. And I think the dismay um, is linked to the sense of their university struggling. Holly, thank you so much for talking with us today. Holly Ajol is managing editor of the Midwest Newsroom, which is a collaboration of NPR member stations in Missouri, Kansas, Iowa, and Nebraska. You can read Holly's story on our website. That's stlpr.org. Coming up, what research says about who experiences workplace bullying most and some of your personal stories, too. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. In preparation for today's St. Louis on the Air discussions of workplace bullying, we asked you to share your stories and your experiences, and these are a few of the personal anecdotes we heard. Luis from Fairview Heights is Mexican and moved to the St. Louis area to work in academia. He spoke to being othered in his workplace, which is predominantly white. I don't feel comfortable just being myself and taking off that mask. Uh, I feel that the white gaze really looks at me and others me. I feel, you know, there's this feeling of, there's a sense of not feeling completely safe, um, feeling left out. And I think just by that, it's already bothering. Marie from St. Louis works in construction, a predominantly male industry. She told us about her hostile work environment. There was one colleague in particular that yelled at me in the middle of the office very violently. Um, There was one male colleague that would lie and try to throw me under the bus. You know, he would lie to try to make me look bad or get me in trouble. And, um... Then I got a phone call a few months later that that person was going to be my new boss. And I always remember that because, like, my, I was on vacation and my stomach just sank because I knew it wasn't going to be good. Elizabeth from downtown St. Louis is a communications professional. For her, workplace bullying took the form of racialized microaggressions. I remember even in my recruiting process, um, comments being made about my hair or... Um, even in some of my first, my earliest jobs, um, hearing the words like colored, um, just really offensive stuff, uh, or even just telling the difference in how I was spoken to at meetings versus other people. Um, yeah, I, I, I could go on and on. That was Elizabeth from downtown St. Louis, Marie from St. Louis, and Luis from Fairview Heights. Each of them spoke to their personal experiences of being on the receiving end of bullying on the job. These are just a few of the comments and stories folks shared with us, but they point to how commonplace workplace bullying is. In fact, there was a time when bullying was regarded as an unpleasant fact of life, almost a rite of passage for school children in particular. In recent years, however, bullying's come under greater scrutiny in various contexts, 
including workplaces full of adults, not kids, with multiple professional degrees. Recent news about the death of Antoinette Bonnie Candia Bailey, a former vice president of student affairs at her alma mater and the historically black Lincoln University, has brought toxic work environments to the fore. But before being a phenomenon with career trajectory consequences, workplace bullying is first a lived experience. And data, research, and personal anecdotes show the brunt of workplace bullying is endured by those who are part of marginalized communities, especially black women. To talk with us about such research and why addressing toxic workplace conduct and culture is a matter of real urgency, we welcome Adia Harvey Wingfield. Adia is Professor of Sociology and Vice Dean of Faculty Development and Diversity at Washington University and the author of several books about the ways race, gender, and class affect social processes at work. Adia, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me back. The mainstream media and general public have been discussing workplace bullying because of recent coverage around Bonnie Candia Bailey's passing and that letter that she wrote with detailed allegations about the workplace bullying she experienced. So to some extent, the discussion makes sense because people have some general sense of what workplace bullying looks like in real life. Adia, what are the facets, though, to what happened at Lincoln University that bear closer examination, um, particularly factors that folks might either be discounting or overlooking? Yeah, I mean, I think the things that we want to think about are people who seem as if they are in jobs that might seem secure, comfortable, and safe, and the interpersonal dynamics that are likely affecting them in these workplaces that may not make these jobs as secure and comfortable and safe as we might think. I think from the outside, you might look in at someone uh, in the situation who's an academic leader and who seems to be on solid ground, who seems to be in a uh, high-profile Uh, really rewarding role. But what that doesn't always tell us are what those dynamics look like and the interactions that that person might be experiencing in that workplace. And that's where we start to see the bullying come in, in Mm -hmm. the ways that people can be intentionally uh, excluded from important meetings and conversations, the ways that people might experience uh, outright aggression and harassment, racial slurs, things like that. Uh, I think that's where we want to be mindful of the fact that just because things might look glossy and pretty on the outside doesn't necessarily portend what's going on for those people in those environments. Mm -hmm. And what is it that we should be attentive to about the specifics of uh, of a setting or location? Yeah, I think what we want to look at is what people's interactions look like in those workspaces. Do people feel as if they are able to speak honestly about their experiences? Do they feel as if they're able to contribute fully? Do they feel as if they have respectful relationships with their colleagues, with their supervisors. And data shows that when we're talking about black women, often that's not the case. Black women are the group that's likely to report the most amount of distance between them and their supervisors and managers, despite having aspirations for advancement and interest in mobility and moving into leadership roles. Mm -hmm. So I think we want to look at the extent to which people feel respected, that their contributions matter, that they are included in workplaces. And often the data show that for, as you mentioned, underrepresented groups, that's often not the case. Mm -hmm. What is the toll that comes with being uh, part of a a minority group and working in, for example, in a predominantly white institution? Right. And so this is where we see a lot of challenges and particularly where where we see some of these examples of bullying and workplace hostility being present. 
We know that black workers are very much underrepresented in most predominantly white professional spaces. And with that underrepresentation is not just the experience of numbers, it's the experience of having to constantly defend and explain their qualifications, of seeing and experiencing people without the same qualifications advance past them on the promotion ladder. I talk in a lot of my research about the mental health toll that this takes on black workers, which seems particularly relevant given our conversation. Mm -hmm. I've talked with black workers, particularly black women, who have been very successful, but who have experienced onslaughts of racist aggression and hostility and found that the workplaces where they were employed didn't really do much about it and Mm -hmm. didn't seem to have a protocol in place to address or even acknowledge that, right? So these experiences of having your uh, skills constantly doubted, skills that you've worked hard to hone and to demonstrate, of seeing that your contributions are not rewarded, of seeing that racist hostilities and sexist hostilities can occur with impunity, all those things take a toll. And these are the types of things that are really pronounced for black workers in these environments. Right. And in Bonnie uh, Candia Bailey's case, she wrote this letter and it really laid out, I mean, even gave dates and, and times. Obviously, I mean, what she left behind is a, a record. Um, what kind of recourse do people typically have or you know what do they do in the absence of those protocols that you're talking about yeah i mean a lot of times i think we see the with the absence of these protocols i think a lot of the times we see people weathering this personal toll themselves right the Issues and the tensions and the problems build up internally, which can have not only mental health consequences, but physical health consequences in terms of hypertension, weight gain, uh, other forms of stress that manifest in the body. Sometimes we also see workers uh, attempting to form solidarity networks amongst themselves. And those Mm -hmm. can be really valuable because that reinforces to people that they're not experiencing something alone, that they have support and they have connections. But ultimately, I have to say, as a social scientist who thinks about organizations, Those approaches are not really as effective and helpful as when organizations take on this awareness and this effort to try to acknowledge and address these issues and try to change them from a structural level and perspective, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, ultimately, we have a lot of companies that say that they want diversity. If you want diversity, part of what that means is recognizing that your employees may be going through some things and that it's incumbent upon you as organizational leaders to know about that and to try to put protocols in place that address and try to resolve those things. Mm -hmm. In the space of higher education, um, there there have been a, a few examples of what you mentioned insofar as um, that stress showing up in the body. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that um, and whether those instances sort of moved uh, the the proverbial, you know, the the needle forward in any way? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that there is evidence that those accounts have moved the needle. I don't think that we are necessarily seeing organizations institute uh, protocols and procedures designed to address the challenges that black workers are facing. When we talk about, for example, like you just mentioned, the way that uh, these experiences manifest in the body, like I said, the data suggests that when uh, workers 
feel as if they are experiencing heightened levels of racist harassment or aggression or what have you, that manifests as heightened stress. It manifests as hypertension. It manifests as it can manifest as uh, challenges with obesity and weight gain. These are very real physical health consequences, apart from the mental health strain that this puts workers under in the first place. But I think when we take the a survey and a landscape of what organizations are doing right now, we aren't seeing them delve more deeply into how they can put into place practices that focus on promoting workers' health and practices that focus on acknowledging and curtailing racist harassment in workplaces. Instead, mm-hmm. right now, what we're seeing is companies really retreating from just basic DEI initiatives, right, and responding to the types of um, outcry and pushback that they're seeing around these efforts towards diversity and equity and inclusion. In my view, that is not reflective of the science and the data, and that's not a way forward that speaks to the prevalence of these challenges. Mm -hmm. And again, to the space of higher education, there have been cases in which um, women, black women, in the academy have publicly suffered. Yeah. Talk about that. I think that that is something important to to touch upon um, because of the way there's been so much attention in mainstream media to what has happened at, at Lincoln University and with uh, Bonnie Candia Bailey. Right. Yeah. So one example would be Dr. Joanne Epps of Temple University, who died suddenly, actually while on stage doing her work for Temple, and Dr. Orinthia Montague of Volunteer State Community College, who died shortly after Dr. Epps died. So we've got these examples of black women leaders who are administrators doing this impactful, significant work, but also paying a pretty serious fatal toll for the work that they are doing. Mm -hmm. Now we're seeing this, and I think it's it's very troubling. As a black woman in higher education, it's really concerning to see black woman leaders moving into these roles and to see the cost of the toll that this work takes on them, particularly when it's a toll that is this final and this absolute. It's very jarring to see that, particularly when you consider that uh, black women are very much underrepresented in higher education Mm -hmm. and certainly in higher education leadership roles. I believe black women constitute Uh, less than 5% of tenured full professors in the academy writ large. And Mm -hmm. so when we think about their numbers in leadership roles, they're not represented at parity in the the population. They are underrepresented in those roles too. And what we are seeing is that those women are not only underrepresented, they are not only the subject of targeted attacks and harassment, they're dying. Mm -hmm. And it's sobering and it's bleak and it's really troubling. Right. And I think Penn State alumna and teacher Yaya M. Hunt Um, died unexpectedly at the age of 26 on December 29th, 2019. Um, And that was in uh, a setting, it was a PWI, predominantly Mm -hmm. white institution. But something about Bailey's death, her being a black woman in a leadership role at an historically black university, what has your research shown about Um, You know, the impression of safety versus the reality of safety for folks who are supposed to be, um, you know, in places that do have their best interests at heart. Right. I mean, I think this goes back to some of what I was talking about before, that we might think that people who are in leadership roles, people who are in high ranking positions are somewhat 
above some of these challenges, right? They've made it, so to speak, and it looks like they're safe. It looks like they're comfortable. And we might think if we're talking about HBCUs and historically black colleges and universities, that certainly is part of the reputation that I think they have for students in particular. These are the safe spaces. These are the places where students can and should feel comfortable to be themselves and that they should feel as if they are fully embraced. So I think it just goes to show that um, when it comes to, again, the experiences of black women working in these environments, we want to be a little bit more circumspect about just how safe these environments are. Leadership roles do not protect you. High-ranking positions in the organization will not protect you. Working at HBCU, unfortunately, will not necessarily protect you. Um, And that until organizations start to be more aware of the myriad of challenges black women are facing and respond accordingly, these are dangerous jobs in some ways. Mm -hmm. How is it that you make the case um, that there are stakes that go beyond individual people? What does that conversation look like? So I think if we're talking about the stakes going beyond individual people, it's useful to think about who we are as a society and what we want our society to be, right? And one of the things that we know is that America is a very diverse place, and it is only becoming increasingly more diverse. So what is that going to mean for the institutions that are bedrock to our society and where those institutions go? Are we going to continue having institutions that are backward looking and are replicative of past generations and past decades? Or are we going to have institutions that are forward thinking that reflect the diversity of America? If we're going to have those institutions, and I think that just makes sense given what our population looks like, then those institutions have to be places where people from all backgrounds can thrive, can succeed, can bring themselves to work and fully contribute and participate to the organizations. They cannot and should be places where black women are literally dying when they are trying to lead. Mm -hmm. Now, we've heard from folks in our audience on social media about the ways they have experienced workplace bullying. And a commonality there is this sense of hopelessness. We have a tragic example of what hopelessness can lead to. And uh, as our producer Maya Norfley put it, it has been past time to come up with solutions. What sort of work must be done to make workplaces emotionally and you know, mentally or psychologically safe for professionals of all backgrounds? Yes, this is my favorite question because now we're talking about solutions and things that we can actually do, right? And so I talk about this a lot in my my research. We've talked before about uh, my book, Gray Areas, and some of the challenges that black workers face in that environment. One of the things that I really want to emphasize from that work and that of my colleagues is that there are data-proven points that organizations can take to try to address the things that we've been talking about. And a lot of those involve making sure that they are environments that speak to and build on the potential and successes that workers of all races can have, rather than being very narrowly focused. Companies can do that through mentoring programs that are open to everyone and that involve everyone rather than being invitation only. They can do that through making sure that people in companies are experiencing cross-training, where they're working with people in different parts of the company. They can do it through making sure that there are uh, opportunities for people to connect with and have relationships with senior leaders, right, instead of just assuming that that will happen organically and that if it happens organically, everyone has an opportunity. Companies can also institute flex time and making sure that they have flexible workplace policies. And the interesting thing about this is that a lot of these solutions are not ones that are explicitly or overtly 
race conscious, right? These aren't programs that ask people to come to a mandatory diversity training where they get told that if they do anything wrong, they're going to get sued, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody (laughs) wants to hear that. And that makes people uncomfortable. But these are the policies that work. And these are the things that actually help for underrepresented workers of all backgrounds to see that the company wants you, it takes you seriously, it takes your concerns and issues seriously, and they want to bring you into the fold rather than pushing you back out. Mm Adia, thanks again so much for joining us today. Thank you. This episode was produced, recorded, and edited by Maya Norfleet. Our audio engineer is Aaron Doerr. This podcast was mixed and edited by Aaron. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative Group. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.